All right, so hey everyone, I am Peter Chihuahua, managing editor at Bitcoin Magazine. Today I am joined with, by Alex Gladstein, uh, Chief Strategy Officer at Human Rights Foundation. Alex, uh, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. So you've contributed a lot to uh, our different editorial products. You've been on quite a few live streams. Um, could you quickly kind of give an outlook on, on your work at Human Rights Foundation and any overlap you see with the Bitcoin community there? Sure. Well, at the Human Rights Foundation, we focus on promoting individual rights and civil liberties in authoritarian societies. And there are many. There are about 95 countries which we at HRF deem to be ruled by either fully authoritarian or competitive authoritarian governments. So, you know, what happens in Europe and the United States is usually sort of outside of our radar, but we realize it can be incredibly influential. And we're, you know, we, we are, and I am personally, of course, quite concerned with uh, the increasing financial uh, regulations and communications surveillance narratives being pushed by governments uh, in, in even in advanced democracies. Right. And so that kind of is a good segue into what I asked you to jump on here to talk about specifically. Um, you know, I've seen in my own newsfeed some concern around a recent uh, resolution from the Council of the European Union. Uh, it's resolution that's being considered, I should note, um, but within that body text, um, the, the resolution is seeking to ensure access to data for judicial and law enforcement purposes. This has been interpreted by a lot of people in the Bitcoin space as um, potential government looking for backdoors to end-to-end encryption. Uh, are you familiar with, you know, kind of this resolution as news and um, is it something that's hit your radar and that you have you know, been able to process and, and have an outlook on? Yeah, so I'd like to provide some context. Of course, governments are always going to be like pushing and prodding in this area, but whether or not they can actually implement laws uh, that mandate things like like backdoors is 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 far from certain. Um, and the history of that has been not great. Uh, if you go back and look at the crypto wars in the '90s with attempts to create clipper chips and things like that, they all sort of failed for various reasons. So what you have today is like a essentially a statement from one of the lawmaking bodies in the EU. So the EU has two lawmaking bodies. They have a council of which Germany is the president at the moment of, um, and which sort of represents the interests of each state um, at an executive point of view. And then you have the parliament, which is filled with uh, what are called MEPs or members of European parliament that are elected by the people in each country to serve uh, you know, in the European parliament. And in order for a law to pass, you have to get 16 of the 28 member states in the council. So you have to basically have the blessing of 16, you know, presidencies or, or prime ministerships um, from across Europe, plus a majority of the MEPs in the parliament. So what you have here is basically like a, a call for research and discussion initiated by uh, one of the member states uh, of the council. We, we, this is not a legislative uh, mechanism here that there's no one saying that we have a draft law. You've actually looked at the, draft statement that they've produced. It's online. Y'all can look at it. I encourage you to put it in the show notes or something, but I mean, it's kind of a mess. I mean, it's not very well researched. It's super high level. Uh, it's full of the traditional hypocrisy that governments have where they say we want to protect strong encryption, or at least, at least democratic governments where they say, Hey, strong encryption is really important. And they acknowledge how it's prevalent in our lives everywhere from e-commerce to messaging. Right. Um, at the same time, they're like, well, we have to seek a balance. 
So that's very dangerous, uh, I do admit, um, and we need to be uh, worried about that. There's no such thing as a balance. You either have encryption or you don't. So we don't want a balance. We want strong encryption. And when governments say that they want a balance, they're acknowledging that they're worried about people doing things with encryption that they can't control. Uh, from a civil liberties perspective, from you know my perspective, that's that's its intention, and that's what it gives us as a check on their power. So uh, you know, encryption and moving along Bitcoin, I mean, are both things that are going to check the power of uh, these elected governments or unelected governments. Um, but you know, I think we need to be always worried about and discussing what governments are saying because it signals their intent. But at the same time, we're very far from like a, an actual law being passed in the EU that would mandate uh, some sort of like you know forced backdoor uh, into devices. Definitely. So those are really critical caveats to emphasize um, that this is far from a mandate that there be backdoors put into encryption. But as you say, this is a signal that on some level, some aspect of the EU, some parties involved in making regulatory decisions are signaling that they do want a balance that includes the ability for them to access data that's encrypted when they want. Uh, is this, and it's a trend that, you know, I personally have seen without being an expert, but it seems to come up, for instance, um, you know, if they, if uh, authorities here in the U.S. get their hands on a iPhone that, that was uh, held by a criminal, they request the ability to break into yeah. it from Apple, for instance. So as a trend that's, growing that seems to be growing if in any particular direction the idea that these encryption backdoors or access to data from authorities that idea has certainly not gone away i i feel like i see it more often um, than i used to although that's anecdotal but as a trend you know from your perspective at the human rights foundation how would you kind of want our audience to what kind of nuance would you want them to bring when they when they think about kind of this this uh, general trend, not specifically necessarily the EU action that we're talking about here. Right. Well, if you read the, again, this sort of draft statement, what they suggest their plan is, is to join forces with the tech industry, is, is what they've said here. Um, and essentially, I think what they're getting at is that they'd like a scenario where they can sort of screen messages, you know, within an app before they're sent. So, you know, they want that software backdoor, um, which I don't think they're going to get. I mean, it's, it, you know, if you looked at what Apple did, the, you know, uh, Tim Cook was lionized, obviously, for refusing to hand over the, you know, you know master key to help solve uh, a crime in San Bernardino, which captured the attention of the American public, right? So it's not quite clear that, that tech companies are going to undermine their value proposition and, and openly give uh, the government you know, access to, to everybody's messages. In fact, that would be totally unconstitutional. And we, of course, went went through this many times after the Snowden leaks, where we saw that telecoms were doing this. And, you know, there was a huge back backlash. And that spurred the rise of users wanting to actually encrypt their messages because they realized they were being spied on, right? So that that's one of the reasons why Signal is so popular. And one of the reasons why WhatsApp ended up adopting intent encryption, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that um, governments see that the easiest way to do it, and as they're saying in the statement, would be to join forces with the tech industry, but that won't be so easy. Um, even in China, which is, of course, a communist authoritarian state, 
the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, does not have it so easy with the big titans over there, the tech titans. At the end of the day, yes, they're like going to be subservient, but they put up a fight. I mean, as you're seeing now that, that you know, the government wasn't very happy with what was going to happen with it, with Ant Group and, and you know, paused its, uh, its uh, fundraise, right? Um, you've seen even in China uh, scrapping between, if you actually read the, the financial literature in, in, in the FT, which does a great job of reporting the tension between the Chinese tech companies and the Chinese government, you know, th- there are a lot of times the Chinese government wants stuff that the tech companies there have, and they don't really want to give it to them for different reasons. Um, so even in the world's most uh, sort of like authoritarian places, tech companies want sort of some sort of independence, right? So, you know, maybe this statement in Europe was meant as a warning of some kind to the tech industry saying, hey, we're going to be coming after you. We're going to be coming to you to seek meetings to figure out how we can get involved with your customers and learn about the data that you guys have internally. But you know, look, I don't think that's necessarily something that that's going to happen. Um, but we could take a, um, a very cautious sort of pessimistic view of this whole thing. I mean, you know, we're all pretty jaded. We've seen unconstitutional spying in, 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 in at least in the United States uh, in a big, big way with hundreds of millions of, uh, you know, almost every American who has a device was spied on in some way um, in the 2000s and during the war on terror. And, and a lot of that you know, it's, it's not clear how much of that continues today, but we could take kind of the pessimistic view and say, hey, we, we're going to just we're just going to encrypt our messages so that they, they, there can't be any messing around. And, and that's why things like Signal are so important, you know, going on this tradition of what the cypherpunks wanted and, and creating things like PGP where people could use PCs to to all of a sudden have secret messaging. This was a, this was a big deal. It's a power shifting uh, historical innovation and now now we have it on our phones right so now you know our phones can can use something as simple to use as signal and, and, and we can share private messages and it's sort of a genie out of the bottle situation like I, you know at the end of the day it's it's very difficult to stop unstoppable code right so i think governments are going to huff and puff and we should push back where we can but at the end of the day what are they going to do you know if they don't have the private key they can't read the message um, and I think all this applies to Bitcoin. I mean, there's going to be a lot of huffing and puffing. I mean, there's going to be a lot of threats. There's going to be a lot of statements like you just saw today coming out of the FATF, which is sort of a, you know, unelected alphabet soup organization uh, that has some some influence, you know, in, in countries like the United States when they make uh, statements about things like the travel rule where, you know, they want every single uh, payment that goes from one financial institution to another to have to bring with it. Uh, all sorts of information about that person who made the payment. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, we can fight back with technology. And that's really where I think uh, our, our, our future is going to be in terms of how we're going to protect our, our digital rights is going to be with technology, not necessarily with policy. I mean, if you look at policy, I mean, policy is going the wrong direction. I mean, this is th- this warning statement, although I'm telling your, your audience to not overreact to it just because of how sort of benign it is it signals what they want to do. Obviously they want to have it both ways. They want to have their cake and eat it too. They, they want to say that they're in favor of encryption while at the same time having back doors, you know, but at the end of the day, even they're using it. Look at the Biden campaign. The Biden campaign used signal. I mean, it's, it's, what are they going to do? Get into the, you know, get, get, get into the white house and then try and try and overturn that. I mean, you have people who have, once you have people who use something in their daily life and they appreciate it, it's going to be tough to overturn. So I think in a lot of ways, the genie's out of the bottle with encrypted messaging. And I, I think that we should be concerned about statements like this, but you know, we should be 
confident that the technology can can repel a lot of this. And you know, Bitcoin is the same with regard to uh, all these new financial regulations and restrictions. It's going to allow us to have this incredible tool that can that can really push back and allow us to have the digital cash that we that you know the cypherpunks dreamed of, and you know that can be a very powerful repellent against this increasing surveillance state. Yeah. So, you know, for better or worse, the, even this relatively benign statement, I think has uh, raised concern among privacy focused people. Um, I think that you've mentioned something that people with that concern can do is actively use um, encrypted messaging, uh, can leverage tools like Bitcoin. Um, What would you say are some other steps that people who, get concerned when they hear this kind of message from a, a government body can do to preserve privacy, to um, encourage, you know, the creation of more privacy technologies and things like that. It depends on who you are, but everybody can start using apps like Signal. I mean, the more, you know, the more conversations you onload to apps like Signal, the less the government has at their disposal. Um, the more that you, you know, self-custody your Bitcoin and use privacy technology uh, like CoinJoins, et cetera, uh, to help establish financial privacy for yourself, the less they have on us, you know? And at the end of the day, you know, I'm not an anarchist. I believe in that government plays a vital role in our, in our world and always will. But these technologies really provide a really good balance uh, you know, of power in terms of checking the power of these governments. And, you know, we, we can prevent their excesses by, by establishing our sovereign, our individual sovereignty in these areas. So I think people can encrypt their messaging. I think people can start, you know, exerting control over some of their money. I think these two things are really, really powerful. Don't use spyware, like don't use WeChat. Uh, try, try to get off, you know, for, for, for sensitive messaging stuff, you know, try to get off some of these platforms. I think most of us realize that these platforms are market. A lot of these social media platforms are marketing platforms and we want to be visible and open, you know, with what we put on there. So that's sort of a a choice we make, but, you know, for, for private messaging, get, you know, get onto platforms that, that you can, you can trust a little bit more. Um, And, you know, certainly looking at systems like lightning, which could really help, I think in many ways, allow us to make small payments in, in in a private manner to people who might be deplatformed. Um, or, you know, make small payments to people who might be behind the enemy lines, you know, if, if you're talking about how governments view each other. Um, I think that's really important to look at as well. So maybe invest in that ecosystem, at least invest some knowledge and learning about what's happening there, you know, so that we can be free in the future to donate to things and buy things, you know, without having to ask uh, government permission. I think that's, again, you know, the dream of the cypherpunks. I think, I think we can live some of it, some of it here. Definitely. So I think um, one one last question I wanted to ask you. So personal choice to use, um, you know, privacy-based, uh, privacy-preserving technology, um, it feels a little bit like preaching to the choir. And you're uh, such an outspoken advocate um, with such good perspective on this. Do you have any advice for, for instance, for me, someone who feels that I take steps personally to, um, you know, obscure the things I want to obscure from the government, but feel that some people that I know who aren't as tech savvy, who aren't indoctrinated kind of into the Bitcoin space, 
maybe don't realize or aren't taking the steps I'd really encourage them to. Anything you could, any advice you could give in sort of helping people red pill a little bit, helping people realize that as benign as a statement like this is, that there, you know, there are reasons that it raises some concerns with other people. Anything I can take away to kind of encourage uh, people outside of our feedback loop a little bit to to take this a little bit more seriously. One thing I wanted to say is that most of your audience, I think, lives in Europe and the United States uh, or, or some other electoral democracy like Japan or Korea or maybe Costa Rica, etc. You know, they have a lot of rights and freedoms um, that maybe they're maybe they're jaded about. Maybe they don't use them, but you know, ultimately, I mean. Th- these are the sort of lucky people on earth who actually could could still conceivably push back and stop things like this from happening at a policy level. That's not, it's not possible to do in China or Russia. Like you don't have, when, when one of these governments that rules by decree wants to, wants to do something like this, they just do it. In Europe, there's like, you know, they send out a signal and then there's a debate and then all of a sudden, okay, the government's got to like hear from the civil society and the media is going to write stories about it this is a very healthy process and this prevents government excess. And we have whistleblowers and they come out and we shame the government and we we stop certain activities they do. Um, It doesn't work perfectly, but it's, it's a very important mechanism and that just doesn't exist in dictatorships and authoritarian regimes where billions of people live. So, you know, if you're coming from a country where you could uh, stand up for your rights, maybe you want to think about supporting an organization like EFF or, coin center or something like that. Maybe, maybe, maybe that's a wise thing to do or get involved yourself, make some calls, uh, put together a movement. I mean, these are, these are things that, that, that can work in democracies. They cannot work in dictatorships. So, I mean, maybe take advantage of this, some of the rights you still have. We have this court system where even if you look at some of these financial laws that were passed in the United States, like the bank, bank secrecy act, I mean, you go back and you, you look at the Supreme Court case that made it constitutional and you look at the dissent and, you know, in the 70s, judges were really worried about, you know, financial institutions having to give up information about their, their customers to the government. There's some ele- very eloquent dissents there um, from that case and from other cases like it. And, and there exists a continual uh, skepticism about the growing surveillance state in our, in our court system. And we should take advantage of that. Cause again, that's not something that people have around the world. You live in Turkey or, or Saudi Arabia or, or Iran, there's no Supreme court, you know, there's no one that can protect you. So for the folks that, that do have the chance to go out, I mean, you know, you can, you can take action. You can start a company in this space um, that, that relies on these things. I mean, look at what Moxie Marlin spike has done with signal. I mean, it's kind of amazing probably have a hundred million daily active users there uh, on a product that the government can't control. I mean, it's really impressive. Um, and due to the fact that he chose to base the company in the United States where there are legal protections, they're not getting raided and, and, and he's not getting arrested. I mean, he could not do that in, in Russia or China. He'd be arrested immediately. So I think we need to take advantage of some of the rights and liberties that we still have here in these democratic societies, make these companies push the technology as far as we can um, put pressure on the courts, fund civil society organizations that'll protect us, while knowing at the same time that most people on earth don't have those privileges. And all their only hope is the technology. You, I mean, if you live in a dictatorship, your only hope is the tech. And guess what? People in open societies were able to help create these things, which then they can use as tools. So it's kind of like on us 
people who still live in, in countries that have some freedoms and rights, you know, it's really on us to create these global borderless tools um, that can be essentially, you know, the savior for the rights of people uh, in, in tyrannies around the world. Definitely. Alex, that's really uh, well put exactly the type of advice that, you know, I uh, appreciate getting from you. I'm sure we'll hear from you soon. Um, is there anything else on this topic you wanted to, uh, to say before I let you go? Yeah, don't take your rights for granted. Use these tools, build them, share them, and just know that, that the tools, again, are, are really the only option for, for billions of people in this world. Um, you might, again, have certain legal and political privileges, and maybe you can speak your mind, and maybe you can convince the authorities, like maybe these folks in Europe, that this was a bad idea, and they shouldn't do this. Um, but that's not a, that's not a privilege that, that most people have around the world. So, you know, don't, don't take it for granted, uh, build the tools, use them, share them, use signal, use Bitcoin. And thanks. Thanks for having me on. Great. Thanks very much, Alex. Uh, talk soon. Good to see you. Um, have a great rest of your day. Thank you very much. I want to tell you about BitcoinBlackFriday.com. Bitcoin Black Friday is a project from the team that brought you Bitcoin Magazine and the Bitcoin 2021 Conference this coming April and May in Los Angeles. Bitcoin Black Friday is a celebration of the growing Bitcoin ecosystem and economy. On the BitcoinBlackFriday.com site, you're going to find deals for up to 50% off on your favorite Bitcoin gear and other merchants that are part of the Bitcoin ecosystem. That's right. They accept Bitcoin. If those deals are not enough, it doesn't stop at spending Bitcoin. This is about the entire Bitcoin circular economy. We have over 65 charities that you can support with Bitcoin on the site, as well as ways that you can stack sats and earn those precious Satoshis. So again, BitcoinBlackFriday.com, great place for deals and to earn and support with Bitcoin. And if that is not enough, we have teamed up with the Fold card. I'm sure many of you guys know that the Fold Bitcoin Back Rewards card is almost here. They have a wait list. And if you sign up for their wait list exclusively through BitcoinBlackFriday.com, in the fold placement and on the banners on the site, if you sign up through that, you will be entered to win a raffle for one entire Bitcoin. That's right. That is one whole BTC. If you're a Bitcoiner, you know that is life-changing amounts of BTC. Or in fiat, that is $13,200 at today's price. And with all the volatility, that could be a lot higher by the time you hear this ad. So don't wait one second. Go to BitcoinBlackFriday.com. Check out the deals. Sign up for the Fold card. Enter your chance to win an entire Bitcoin. Bitcoin.